mini episode 1250 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at Sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode 1250. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here. And we are going to be revisiting a segment that we did last year with uh, a gentleman who is a longtime expert in law enforcement and security, just happens to be the police chief of my hometown, and my cousin, Ed Tomba, as we covered previously last year when we spoke with him uh, about his experiences. It was primarily through the prism of the very successful 2016 Republican National Convention, which went off safely without a hitch and where he was basically responsible for everything day-to-day on the ground, and everything really kind of fell on his shoulders. And I I said at the time that uh, the family and uh, I'm sure friends as well, we were all kind of holding our breaths to make sure that this would go okay because we wanted everything to go well for Ed, and it did. And I, I have to say, unfortunately, in recent weeks here in the Cleveland area, and we've seen nationally an example of what can happen when forces get beyond your control with a lot of the rioting that we've seen and the looting and a lot of the damage that has been done subsequently. So it's a very different landscape one year later, not to mention the fact that we are in a uh, pandemic. We will touch on that, which, by the way, this is the first segment that we have uh, recorded during the pandemic. Well, this is not part of our Coronavirus Crisis 2020 series, per se. First one we've done in masks, but we are here in person at the Middleburg Heights uh, Police Station going through this, so we are being responsible in how we're going about this. I, I have confidence that the sound is going to be fine, and I know that the content is going to match as it did last time. Always a pleasure to talk to my cousin, Ed Tomba, as I say, an expert on law enforcement and security, and a uh, pleasure to have you on last time, Ed. Thank you so much for coming back today. Yeah, no, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to speak to you again and speak to the, uh, to the listeners. Absolutely, and I know that there's there's a lot of curiosity right now about matters in law enforcement and uh, how things are going. And again, we we should use probably at least at the outset uh, last year in some of our conversations as a uh, jumping off point. So start with the Republican National Convention, and there were a series of things. And as you and I talked about off air, that, that we had talked about Ferguson at that time as far as something that lit the fuse for a series of incidents that were happening around the country at that time. By 2019, it was a little bit more in the rearview mirror, but obviously with the George Floyd thing uh, recently in Minneapolis, a couple of other uh, things as well, Brianna Taylor in Louisville, but uh, the George Floyd one was the big one. Clearly, the Ferguson effect uh, as far as uh, having the, the potential to light the fuse on these matters was not behind us, as I thought, a year ago. It continues to be with us, and it continues to be an ongoing challenge for law enforcement. Well, it, it does, and uh, law enforcement is not without its challenges. But, uh, you know, let me say right, you know, right from the beginning here that uh, what we saw, what everybody saw in uh, Minneapolis um, was, uh, was a murder. Totally, totally uh, a criminal act. 
Um, there's not one law enforcement officer that would try to agree or explain that away. Uh, what took place was uh, reprehensible, and um, one person changed the course of uh, the way our country's going right now. And um, it's just, uh, it, uh, it hurts me that it was uh, uh, someone with a badge and a uniform because uh, so many of us are very proud and we take our oath very seriously. But just from the onset, um, there's no, uh, you know, there's no other way to describe it than a, uh, you know, an outright murder that was uh, caught on uh, video and the whole world saw that. The way that everything is getting caught on video these days with smartphones, in a sense, it's almost surprising that something like this didn't happen earlier just because of how ubiquitous they are. You go back to 91 with the Rodney King incident, that was with a camcorder. And I remember hearing at the time people saying, well, this is the future. Such things are going to be caught on video. And it's, it almost is remarkable over the last 30 years with the prevalence of these things now uh, that something like that hadn't been caught in that matter previously uh, because they, they are everywhere. And, and this is now something, of course, this is going to just increase the challenges, I'm sure, for law enforcement because everybody is really going to have them out now more than ever. Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we have them, uh, the public has them, everybody has a, a device in their hand, and uh, there was a, a recent statistic that uh, beyond that device in your hand, probably 75% of your day is caught on some type of video, um, from surveillance cameras to security cameras. So um, it's out there. Uh, I think it's, it, it's good. It keeps everybody accountable, and I can tell you that um, over the uh, the course of the years that we've been uh, wearing these body cameras that, uh, you know, more times than not, you know, the police officers are doing the right thing and they're conducting their day-to-day -day business, providing services to the communities that they, uh, that they serve uh, in a professional manner. And um, this is uh, something that, that took place, like I said, that was not, uh, that, that, that technique uh, is not trained. Uh, it's not in any policy. Uh, this was a police officer that, uh, you know, a former police officer that did something that, uh, you know, sparked um, a, uh, a conversation and a movement uh, that is going to take place, I believe, is going to be with us for a very, very long time. Absolutely. And in terms of accountability on issues like this, before I even get into the nitty-gritty of it, I want to go back to something that uh, you had said to me off-air previously over the phone, and that is, the notion that before we even get into talking about accountability and everything like that, it is necessary to talk about, from your perspective, as somebody, a uh, longtime commander, deputy chief of a major city police department in Cleveland, uh, just how rare instances like this in your experience have been. And that would seem like a pretty good sample size to me. Someone of your position, for that long, everything that you saw, that—that that is a perspective I think that the public needs to hear. Yeah, well, um, you know, in my career, uh, almost 33 years with the city of Cleveland and now uh, a couple of years out here in, uh, in the city of Middleburg Heights, um, you know, we haven't seen anything like that. You know, we've seen officers involved in very, very high-profile use-of-force incidents, um, but that, you know, once, once the, the subject... The suspect, the person, is handcuffed and subdued. You know, all any further use of force is inappropriate. Mm -hmm. um, they are uh, they're they're in handcuffs. That's our job. They're secured. 
but anything after that is uh, is is inappropriate and uh, criminal, which this act was. Absolutely, and it would just seem like, from, from a common sense point of view, with, with incidents like that, and, and I'm sure this is something that gets told all the time, particularly with the prevalence of video phones out there, always act as though you're being watched. Always act in a way that you can defend later. I mean, I would guess that's something that gets told all the time. Yeah, it does. And, and you know, as uh, public servants, uh, law enforcement officers, you know, I like to say that we uh, we welcome the oversight. You know, we mm -hmm. welcome the oversight of uh, our supervisors, our mayors, our city council, and then uh, the oversight of our uh, of our citizens. Those mm -hmm. are the those are the ones that uh, give us the guide to uh, you know how they want their communities policed. Mm -hmm. You know, they want their community policed fairly, professionally, and with the uh, with the least amount of uh, force and interference um, that is uh, you know that is allowed out there. So I think that uh, we need to uh, keep doing that. We need to keep listening. And we need to welcome that oversight and not be afraid to change. Uh, you hear a lot about, uh, oh, these are societal problems. The, this is, well, you know what? It, that takes a long time for change. But we as an organization have a certain amount of people. We're the ones that need to change and we need to react to the changing times and react to the way our, our communities that we serve, uh, you know, look at us and uh, the way they want to be policed by us. Very well said, and one of the things that we talked about uh, on the show previously uh, during a segment that we did about the recent protest movement, there was something that I had said at the time that just strikes me as, as being a lot more complicated than people really kind of tend to give credence to, and that being, I want to ask you specifically with your uh, background, because you have been somebody that's worked in internal affairs uh, with police, and that, to me, seems like probably one of the most thankless jobs there is because, obviously, the public, we want as much accountability as we can get. On the other hand, there are police unions, and there is a brotherhood among police, which is, uh, broadly speaking, I mean, that's a very good thing. You have to have trust. You have to have uh, everything working smoothly among your colleagues. And nobody in any organization uh, out there uh, likes to think of uh, anybody else in a way that they would consider to be a rat. Uh, fairly or unfairly. So it's a thing where it just strikes me that, that maintaining that kind of accountability, uh, and thankfully from what you said earlier, that it's rare that it would have to come into being, but that just strikes me as a very, very tough thing to do with all these countervailing issues that you have. You know what, it's a, it's a very, uh, it was a very challenging assignment, mm -hmm. um, but it is needed. Um, you know, we, we get, uh, you, you know, we get uh, told that, you know, we can't police our own. But um, to have uh, an oversight unit within a law enforcement agency, I think, is, uh, is critical for checks and balances. Uh, we are a, uh, a subset of society. Uh, I've been saying this for a long time that, um, you know, there are people, there are men and women that shouldn't be in the profession, and they get into the profession. Mm -hmm. But, um, like I said, that, that's what internal affairs and that's what oversight is for. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's needed, and I think it's uh, appropriate to have that uh, internal oversight uh, within a law enforcement agency. You know, we're we're given a great deal of power um, over the public, so I think we need to uh, respect that, and we need to have uh, internal controls uh, that uh, that keeps everybody in line in within policy and within the law. 
Absolutely, I think most people would agree with that. Uh, in terms of some of the proposals that have come out recently uh, to try to address uh, matters in law enforcement, one of them has been, and this sounds to me like a pretty good idea anyways from what I've heard, the idea of some sort of, whether it be national database or something like that, to address what you're talking about in terms of uh, if, if somebody's been drummed out of one police department for wrongdoing to make sure they can't just go to either the next town, three towns over, wherever it might be, something that where basically there's a little bit more uh, accountability uh, for that person for their background. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I, yeah, I do, and I, and I would agree with that. Um, you know, I, I don't think that would be a, a problem. Part of that falls right now on the individual agency when somebody applies um, to do their due to a complete and thorough background check, you know, on that individual. But if there was some type of certification, and if that certification was revoked, then that person couldn't apply to another agency because that would be a requirement. It would be like having a, a driver's license. That's a requirement for our, our to be a police officer. You have to have a valid driver's license. Mm -hmm. Well, now you have to present a valid certification. And if you were ever decertified, that should preclude you uh, from being a law enforcement officer in another agency. Mm -hmm. And I would think... The, the heads of those agencies would look at that and, you know, realize what a liability that could be, sure. you know, for your agency. And um, there's plenty of qualified candidates out there. So Absolutely. And on that one, again, that seems like kind of the low-hanging fruit as far as proposals that are out there. There's other ones that get to be a little bit more thorny as far as uh, potentially stripping uh, legal immunity away in certain cases. Uh, there is that uh, that legal shield that does apply uh, in in the course of law enforcement and uh, measures that would uh, either strip that uh, on a limited basis if somebody was found to be uh, guilty of murder or something like that or on a larger basis. So the, the proposals from there seem to get a little bit more complicated, it seems like. Yeah, they definitely do, and I think that's something that's probably going to have to get, uh, you know, worked out uh, in the courts. Um, for us, you know, our our standard is what was perceived at the moment that mm -hmm. action took place. So I think there needs to be some type of uh, some type of perfect, uh, protection. Um, I still believe in, you know, we, we deserve, you know, the due process. Mm -hmm. I know that is a, uh, that's very, very difficult, but I think we, uh, you know, we need to be afforded the same rights as, uh, as, as everybody else that's guaranteed by the, uh, by the Constitution. And the laws in the in the state that we uh, that we work in. Absolutely, yeah, I would agree with that. And uh, some of the other uh, proposals that have, that have come up have have gone even further into in, in some cases. And there's been a little bit of a uh, debate about what the whole defund thing is. Is it is it a matter of just radical reimagining? Is it a matter of doing without it altogether? Uh, yeah, and I have to guess that in the, in the case of Minneapolis, uh, if they mean doing without it altogether as far as the, the police there, you're not going to have a Mall of America anymore or any other businesses in there that are going to want to be a part of that scene. So as, as far as the more radical reimagining of these matters here, uh, again, it, it can't be said enough that there has to be the police there as a backstop for uh, the, the matters to basically address actual crime, violent crime, things of that nature. But uh, this is a moment in time where uh, there are a lot of really far-flung ideas getting thrown around. Uh, I would agree. Uh, number one, I, I you know I don't agree with uh, with the defunding. I think law enforcement has a place uh, in our society, uh, and I think over the years, 
uh, we've been at, particularly in the uh, in the urban setting, that uh, our mission has been uh, diluted, and we've been asked to be to you know to be everything to uh, you know to a lot of different uh, uh, areas of our society. So um, uh, I know that we've had you know training in uh, force mental health issues uh, and all types of other issues and I think that's a good thing mm -hmm. without a doubt I think it's a good thing but I do think that uh, law enforcement we we can change we can be reimagined and I think we can refocus our mission with input from the communities that we serve I mean I'm, I am all for that and uh, you know 95 to probably a hundred percent of the interactions that we have with people, they're not on their best day, mm -hmm. and it's not. It could be from a simple be, uh, traffic stop to being pulled over. Who likes to get pulled over and receive a traffic citation sure. where they have to pay a fine? I haven't. <laughs> it's not pleasant, right? It's not pleasant. So I think if we if we look at it as a whole about where we've come and where we've gotten to, that uh, I, I don't think uh, this is a bad time to to kind of reset and. Uh, you know, every every city and every community is different, but provide the type of policing that is wanted by the citizens who pay our ta who pay their taxes and um, you know support us uh, in the communities. That's a very good point. Yeah, it's it's an excellent opportunity right now if cities can make the most of it and address it as you say in a manner that that keeps the police you know best focused according to their resources and abilities. Uh, what I'm wondering about also, too, is uh, given your background, whether it be some of the special training you had with the city, whether it be with, with Quantico, anything, I'm wondering in terms of the, the occupied zone that there was recently in Seattle, I mean, we, there are other analogs to this in recent history, whether it be uh, the Branch Davidians out in Texas, whether it be, I think it was MOVE in Philadelphia in 1985, where I think eventually that ended up kind of tragically as well. The, the notion of how you handle something like this, again, fortunately, with uh, taking the, uh, the Middlebrook Heights job uh, a couple of years ago, safe to say you'll never deal with something like that here. But uh, it, it, is there any kind of uh, thoughts that you have from any of your previous training on what happens with a situation like that, how you do it? They, they did manage to de-escalate it in Seattle. I was skeptical because they seemed to be coddling them for a while, but they did get through it. But... That's got to be kind of a, a difficult situation as well. Yeah, I think that's a uh, an individual choice of the uh, you know the the political leaders and the police leaders out there. You know, I looked at it obviously from a distance, and I'd like to say, boy, you know, they they shouldn't have let that happen. Mm -hmm. You know, they they should have stepped in sooner uh, because there has to be some type of law and order. There has to be some type of of leadership, mm -hmm. but you know, is that the kind of policing that um, the citizens of Seattle wanted? You know, so I, I don't know if the if the mayor and the police chief were just kind of reacting to that, but um, somebody has to be in charge of that. And what you're doing is you're infringing on the rights of all the people that live there to go about their business and to you know to uh, you know to live their life. So you know, when that happens, I think that that is a law enforcement. Um, mission is to make sure that people have the right to live freely and to do uh, to move about their uh, their communities without the uh, you know without the threat of anybody or without being uh, intimidated and I think uh, you know from a distance from looking at that from uh, from Cleveland you know I think that's what happened um, I, I I think that uh, 
there there should have been uh, action should have been taken swifter uh, to keep that neighborhood um, safe, secure, and uh, available for the people that live and work there to move around freely. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And uh, again, while it's not the large-scale tragedy that it could have been, unfortunately, the end did not come prior to some loss of life and other yeah. destruction that had happened. So yeah, I mean, it was just because it wasn't a complete disaster doesn't mean that it went well. But you had that happening. That was, of course, an outgrowth of, uh, as we touched on in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing, the uh, the riots that erupted uh, first in Minneapolis, then I think I remember a day two, it seemed to be L.A., and then it was pretty much everywhere. Columbus, I think, happened about a day before we did in the Cleveland area, and then it, of course, happened in Cleveland. And uh, again, with, with, your, with everything that you went through in 2016, planning for that moment for the Republican National Convention, and as we touched on previously, too, let's not forget, the night the Cavs won the championship, there was a ton of people downtown, nothing happened. 1.3 million people at the victory parade, nothing happened. That entire summer was something that went very, very well for the city of Cleveland law enforcement-wise. I, I can only imagine just the, the sadness and the empathy that you must have felt four years later, seeing this unfold subsequently? Well, I, I did, and, you know, I, uh, I, I, you know, I still support, and I have so many friends in law enforcement in the city of Cleveland, and I count, uh, you know, the leaders there. Chief Williams is one of them. But just to give you a little bit of, uh, of perspective, the way I look at it, you know, I did have people call me and ask me about, um, you know, geez, how come this happened then and it didn't happen in 2016? It's obviously a very different time. Uh, secondly, uh, I had, along with other members of the Division of Police, had, you know, 18 to 24 months to prepare mm -hmm. for the convention. We had a $50 million grant from the federal government mm -hmm. to provide training and equipment. And then we also had 3,300 police officers from around the country to help us prepare for that. Sure. So, um, the comparisons, um, you know, people want to compare mm -hmm. right away, but also, um, you know, we, we, it was very tense at the time, mm -hmm. but like I said, we had the resources, we had the planning, and in all the years I've been in Cleveland, uh, all the protests and march I've worked, uh, you know, we never had the violence. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at it, you know, from a historical point of view, um, like I said, we never, we never really had that. So, you know... Everybody can't be an outsider that comes in and disrupts things. Sure. You know, make no mistake about it. There were people from the city that participated in this, but there were definitely agitators and people that kind of lit that fuse, mm -hmm. you know, downtown. So, um, I don't, I don't find, I'm sure they're doing a review. I don't find, you know, fault in, and I think the comparisons are unfair mm -hmm. uh, for the chief and for the men and women that were in the middle of that. Like I said, um, preparation time, resources, money, you know, we had it all for 2016, so, you know, we, we, we better have been successful. Uh, but the day-to-day -day operations of these law enforcement agencies across the country, um, that, that's not their day-to-day -day mission. And I think some of them just got, uh, you know, got, got caught, uh, in, in the midst of something that they, they couldn't control right away, and it took them a little, a little time to get things under control. Absolutely, yeah. and again, happening nationally, just what a sad story uh, that was, and uh, again, just, you know, my heart goes out to all the 
victims of that, and uh, they're at a time of what is already mass unemployment and businesses going under due to coronavirus, you have that as well, all the businesses being shuttered as a result of being uh, damaged or ruined in, in the aftermath of that. So uh, to bring that around, uh, you and I talked a little bit off air, something that uh, never would have uh, been on our mind a year ago to talk about would be pandemic planning. And uh, again, when we were talking about this with, uh, you know, Middlebrook Heights being, you know, a nice sleepy community here for you to come be chief at, uh, again, to, to, to think that a year later there'd be the challenges and the pressures that would come with being a police chief anywhere in this country and steering through a pandemic of this nature. Uh, certainly, again, at, at least some of your previous training obviously has to help a little bit as far as things to think about. This is something that had, had been in your mind, I know, previously from, from training. But ultimately, in the end, there's nothing. This, this has been an experience unlike any in our lifetimes. There's nothing that's going to prepare anybody for this completely. No, there's no doubt about it. I mean, my, my main concern, you know, was the, uh, you know, the health and well-being of the, the guys and gals in this building, you know, mm -hmm. the men and women here, because, um, you know, we have to continue to provide services to our community, and we obviously were very concerned about, you know, people uh, getting sick and then, uh, you know, passing this virus, uh, passing this virus around. But, you know, all, all the years that all the trainings I've been to, you know, the pandemic training, was always, you know, led by public health officials, uh, emergency medical officials, hospitals. You know, the uh, the fire department, the the police departments weren't really on the on the front line of it. You know, mm -hmm. we kind of sat uh, second or third chair during these training exercises and these tabletop exercises. But uh, without re realizing, you know, very quickly that hey, you know what, we are a part of this. We are on the front lines, and uh, we need to. Uh, respond accordingly. So um, I think we do a good job of adjusting. Mm -hmm. And with that said, I think, you know, going back to our earlier part of the discussion is that we can adjust with, uh, you know, with the changes being made in law enforcement. You know, we're very, we have a lot of discretion. And, uh, you know, the main, like I said, the main concern was keeping everybody healthy. So we've been fortunate. Uh, we've been healthy here and we're still providing services and we're still taking, uh, taking our precautions with, uh, Temperature checks, washing of the hands, masks, and uh, social distancing, um, but still providing services to the members of our community. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that because, yeah, I hope everybody is able to stay safe and healthy uh, in the pursuit of serving this community. And uh, you're, you're right, actually, as far as whether it be that, whether it be this particular moment that we're having in law enforcement right now. Ultimately, coming out of this, I mean, you talk about a very transformative year. The resets that are coming all across society are just very numerous right now. So really, what law enforcement is going to be dealing with the fallout of coronavirus. It's going to be dealing with the fallout of the protest movements. I mean, it's, it's going to be a very, very interesting chapter in the next couple of years, hopefully one that can be navigated successfully. Yeah, I don't, I don't see uh, any of these issues going away. Um, you know, you're still going to have law enforcement. You're going to have... Uh, you're going to have very, very high-profile uh, criminal proceedings mm -hmm. that are going to take place. You're going to have a highly charged uh, election cycle coming up within the next uh, 90 days. So I don't see any of these issues going away, uh, which is, you know, sometimes that's what happens. You know, other things get uh, get pushed to the forefront. But I think for us as law enforcement, we need to keep the keep the conversations open no matter how 
unpleasant at times they can be mm-hmm. um, to keep those open and to and to really really listen and um, you know if we can do things better if we can provide better services you know I think we need to uh, you know we need to make those changes as organizations we're fortunate you know I have a 30 person department here you know I can affect change uh, pretty quickly here mm-hmm. you know the bigger departments are a little more of a challenge but um, uh, there's no doubt about it that uh, the, the larger departments have been changing and adapting, and uh, we just have to listen to, uh, you know, to our uh, our citizens and our residents as to, you know, what type of policing they're looking for. Well, that's a very healthy way of looking at it, certainly, and uh, one can only hope that that's going to be uh, the attitude all across the country here in trying to navigate uh, these different issues. And, uh, again, a completely different landscape sitting here talking with you this year as it was uh, last year, where again, really sort of a peacetime kind of a vibe, if you will, a year ago, and now in the midst of the pandemic and uh, the everything, all the upheaval in law enforcement now, uh, a much different atmosphere, but uh, the common denominator, of course, being great analysis from you. I really appreciate it, Ed. Thank you so much. I look forward to catching up subsequently as a couple of these things play their way out and we can kind of assess what's happened from there. Yeah, I hope so. I, I appreciate the opportunity to uh to sit down with you again, it's always uh, it's always enjoyable, and I hope uh, we'll be able to reconvene in, uh, in in a in a certain time and talk about the positive things that have been going on and uh, what direction that uh, we're moving in uh, across this country and uh, in the city of Middleburg Heights. Definitely, I look forward to reconvening, and as you say, hopefully we'll have good things to talk about then. But uh, in the meantime, thanks Eddie for being a part of this great conversation today. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in at BH Lounge Mini Episode 1250.